Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm back here with Haven Pell, and I'm Fraser Rice. We are speaking on a, at least in New York, a chilly Sunday morning, and this is right after the Nevada caucuses, where it looks like Bernie Sanders has zoomed ahead, at least as a front runner. What we were going to be talking about was the effect of Bloomberg on the election, and it's going to be interesting to see whether he has a lot of effect going forward, because as the population is digesting the results from last night, it'll be interesting to see whether Bloomberg and his wealth is going to have an impact after his debate performance. Haven, how are you? I am well, thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Likewise. So from your vantage point, and you've been doing a little bit of research and talking to some folks from a Bloomberg perspective, the impact that he's brought to the race has certainly been money. It's been the sort of invitation to a quote unquote electable candidate who has experience and can take on Trump. He really stubbed his toe in the debate. Where do you see him at the moment? Well, the conflict among Democrats appears to be the intense desire to beat Trump versus the accusation that Michael Bloomberg is buying the election. There's an overtone of a sort of an anti-Bernie Sanders aspect to it. And one of the things that's interesting to put it into perspective in terms of those who would prefer that the election not be bought is that Bloomberg has spent more than all the other candidates combined. He is spending $7 million a day, which translates into $300,000 per hour, $5,000 a minute, and $82 per second. That is a set of statistics that can make a left-leaning populist look pretty good. I was going to say, it makes Imelda Marcos look frugal. Yes. I don't know how much he spent on shoes. Right. So the crazy part to me is that at least here in New York, we're we're deluged with Mike Bloomberg commercials. I find them to be effective. He, in particular, one where he's using a lot of different Obama quotes that give off the appearance that he's being sort of ratified by Obama as a very legitimate candidate, even though the quotes are probably six to 10 years old, maybe more. But for people who aren't paying attention to the debates in a strict way, it could be an interesting sort of notion that he's pulling a quote unquote Trump by going around the political industrial complex. Do we think that there's room for that? Or has he started too late? Has Bernie gotten enough momentum that the traditional process is is his to lose at this point? And then, you know, I guess it's such a big topic, but I guess where do the other candidates fit in? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, clearly, I don't think anybody doubts that the performance of Mayor Bloomberg in the debate was terrible. And the pictures of his sort of looking up, looking skyward and rolling his eyes really remind people of George Bush looking at his watch. And so for the traditionalist who says, look, there's a process, this is how we nominate people, this is how we do it, think about the Lincoln-Douglas debates, all of that sort of history, the people who favor that obviously don't like his approach, which is 
I'm going to buy ads and I'm going to change people's minds simply by talking to them and not responding to them. And there are those who prefer the idea that a, that a candidate is vetted. The problem is the debates particularly, clearly, they're not debates. All the high school kids who work hard to learn how to debate and to do sort of Oxford-style debating, they look at this. It's really, I think, uh, Fraser, sometimes about our industry in which we would have to make pitches. And this is almost, the debates look to me as if something that would happen if you brought 10 investment management firms into the same room and had them all pitch at the same time. <laughs> not a good outcome. Well, I mean, we're all taught that you're not supposed to speak ill of the others. That was in where I was trained. We were never supposed to say anything bad about anybody else. Now, we were supposed to say good things about ourselves. And we could sort of get in trouble for doing that. But in these debates, or so-called debates, you end up in a situation where a friend of mine sent me an email, and he actually took the time to look up whether piranhas eat each other. And the answer is, yes, they do. A piranha will spy a wounded piranha and will eat that, even while the wounded piranha is eating whatever else they're eating. And so you look at that as an image for what's going on when you have half a dozen or a dozen people on the debate stage, and they're just going after each other. It kind of looks like piranhas eating each other. Well, certainly Buttigieg and Klobuchar going after each other, and then you've got Warren and going after Bloomberg and Sanders going after everybody and watch it and you just say, geez, this is a real sandbox outfit here. And against that backdrop, the notion that people are angry at Bloomberg for, quote unquote, buying the election, I mean, there's no guarantee that they get to the convention and that there's sort of a DNC structure that wants to, quote unquote, take it away from Bernie whether it's Bloomberg or not. And that to me is the Democrats go down that route. Ideologically, they just give away the store, I think, to the Republicans or, or even the notion that the Electoral College is unjust. We start going down that rabbit hole. I think that the Democrats, the sort of people who still think Biden has a chance, and then the other folks who Buttigieg and Warren and Klobuchar, how do we navigate that? And if you're a Democrat and you're not happy with the concept of Sanders and what he represents, but you're left with not much else, and really, I mean, you're sort of you're left with an open bag. Well, it's very interesting because, I mean, there's among the Bernie bros and his strongest supporters, there's clearly a hangover effect from the idea that the DNC was thumbing the scale for Hillary. They believe that Sanders was being unfairly treated the last time. At this point, whatever the establishment of the Democratic Party really is and what it looks like, they're facing a situation in which if you look at these 50% results in Nevada, you have Sanders with 47 and Warren with 10, which is a total for the sort of leftermost group in the Democratic Party. That's 57. If you take the more moderate, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and if you put Tom Steyer in that group, which may be generous, you end up with 43. 55% is a landslide. The far left would have 57% just based on this 
current levels of reporting. It probably isn't going to change enormously in the coming days. But I think it's one of the things that the Sanders campaign would like would be to get a bounce from the Nevada caucuses. And they will surely accuse the DNC and the app creators and all the conspiracy theories that are going on, they will accuse them of denying Bernie his bounce by having the results, again, just like Iowa, be too late for his publicity needs. So as we get into the rest of the week and assuming the results hold, which I think is reasonable, go into South Carolina next week. And this is really Bloomberg's first major foray into actual votes. We're hitting into also Joe Biden's last stand, I think, his firewall. He's already sort of put all his eggs in that basket, even ahead of Super Tuesday. From Bloomberg's perspective, he's got the wealth to do whatever he wants. He can run as long as he would like to. What does he need to do in South Carolina? And what does he need to do in Super Tuesday to really make the case? Well, Fraser, as I understand it, Bloomberg is in the South Carolina debate, but is not on the South Carolina ballot. So his first foray will be Super Tuesday. And that is a good, that's a third of the delegates to the Democratic Convention will be chosen on Super Tuesday. And by having the 10 or a dozen states or whatever it is, it kind of takes the retail out of it. The ads that you are seeing and the ads that are going on everywhere else will be more effective on Super Tuesday than they would be in a single state like South Carolina. That said, he will be debating. And another terrible performance, if one assumes that the first performance was terrible, another terrible performance will be quite frightening to those DNC people who say, well, I don't love buying elections, but on the other hand, I'd rather buy one than lose one. Right. Now, I sort of look at it and say, okay, so Bloomberg not on the ballot on South Carolina. It's a big deal. If Biden really falters at the polls and Sanders emerges or Warren or Buttigieg or Klobuchar make a dent, you know, even Tom Steyer, I guess, if he's got, if he makes a bit of a dent there, from a momentum standpoint, I think that there's a real event here going into that Super Tuesday. And, you know, if Bloomberg does sort of botch the debate, how do we even recognize what to look for going into Super Tuesday, assuming, let's assume for a second that Biden somehow pulls off a close win, which is what the polls seem to indicate. How does Bloomberg then slot in after that? I guess you'd have to say, if Biden pulls off a close win in South Carolina, then that is a plus for the more moderate lane. And then you'd have to see whether money overcomes momentum. And I don't know that I would, in sports terms, if Biden were to win in South Carolina, it seems to me it would be like a game in which you were down by four goals and now suddenly you're down by two. You're still down. And it seems to me that a great deal of damage has been done to the idea of Biden's prospects. Nationally, he polls at 17. Sanders is at 28. I think that there are, for sure, three candidates who need, who are in the one-putt green category. Sanders, age 79 at the election, Biden, 78 at the election, Bloomberg, 78 at the election. They need to sink this pot. Then you have 
two candidates who I would call in two-putt territory, and that's Klobuchar, who is 60, and Steyer, who was 63. If they don't win it this time, they can come back and try it again. Then you have your three-putt candidates, who are Buttigieg at age 39 and Tulsi Gabbard at age 39. They have lots more tries at this. Elizabeth Warren, she's in the two-putt category, probably. Yeah, she's 71. I put a question mark next to that. She, Yeah, she could conceivably come back at age 75. I can relate to people who are have a seven as their first digit. I do. And I don't think I don't think I would want to be running for president. I mean, I don't mind trying a lot of ski days, but I don't think I want to be running for president. A, it's no fun. B, it's pretty tiring. Well, and boy, Joe Biden really seems to show that. Boy, he's just not for an affable guy, the age and the toll and so on. And I just wonder whether the electorate's sort of just watching his performances and saying, you know what, this isn't going to work. I mean, Bernie Sanders has looked 79 for 40 years now, and he seems to own it. And the energy is there. The passion and the sharpness seems to be there where Biden, boy, maybe 10 years ago, possibly, but it's not working. I think about how adamant my wife is about my appearance. Now, I can't do a good hair thing, so I just cut it all off. You look at some of these people who don't seem to look after their appearance, and they look old, they look a little crazy, their hair's flying all over the place, and they're shaking their fists around and so forth. And it, it isn't inspiring. I think we tend to have more confidence in people who appear to be put together. Fortunately, I'm not going to get into sexist territory there because I'm actually thinking of it mostly as the men who don't appear to be put together. Certainly. I mean, Bernie Sanders looks like a mad scientist half the time, but apparently that's part of his charm. I can't think of the name of the... Oh, I, it must have been Back to the Future, the movie in which the scientist and they had the car that went... The nuclear-powered DeLorean. Yes. Bernie Sanders reminds me of that guy. I think that is, to a certain degree, I mean, he may be appealing in some respects, but imagine how you would feel if you were a Democratic congressman who snuck in close in a swing district last time. And actually, that group of people provided the majority in the House that Nancy Pelosi that made Nancy Pelosi the Speaker of the House. How do you feel as a down-ballot person with Sanders at the top? That's a great question, because I saw a tweet from Lloyd Blankfein who said if it's Trump v. Sanders, he may have to vote Trump. And I thought, there's another perverse aspect. So up here in the Northeast, where Democratic voting is almost taken as a given now, I think you could see a real narrowing in places like Westchester and Long Island for people who look at it and say, you know what, my economic interests, as odious as Trump is, my economic interests are far better served with him in office than Bernie is. I mean, I, I could envision I could envision Sanders losing Westchester and Long Island up here in New York, which are two wealthy suburbs, which would be unthinkable in any other circumstance. I think that's right. I mean, I think that that is a factor. And we have an example, it seems to me, albeit in England, in which Jeremy Corbyn got hammered by Boris. And he took down a massive number of 
seats that had been held by labor forever. And they went down because Corbyn was viewed as or could be depicted as a socialist. And I can be fairly naive and aspirational in terms of what I hope politics will be. But I don't for a moment think that people will step out and vote to shoot themselves in the wallet. And so I think that that's what's really scaring the bejesus out of the people who hope to put a win for the Democrats in the presidency. And their worst scenario is that both the House, the Senate, and the presidency are held by the Republicans because then all the investigations go away. You don't even have the publicity beating up on the guy. So let's veer back for a second. And so the Democrats sort of at the DNC level and so on are watching this Sanders momentum build up and the rest of the candidates are filling out their roles, trying to gain some momentum, maybe make a dent in South Carolina, maybe make a dent in in or on Super Tuesday. And you've got Bloomberg looming in the wings with the dollars and the ability to make that national dent. You were doing some talking to some people before we were around the air here. What would you advise Bloomberg and what did you hear from some of those folks that might be interesting in terms of helping him propel his candidacy forward? Aside from step one, perform better in the next debate. In a way, I mean, I know we share an interest in golf. And one of the things that you absolutely don't do, for example, if you're a caddy, is to tell your player what not to do. And that's a great way to get fired as a caddy from the PGA Tour, is to say, don't hit the ball in the water, Tiger, because how do we react? We think about the water, and boom, that's what our body does. hits the ball in the water. So telling Bloomberg in his debate reactions, I don't think that there's any problem with his ads. I don't think that there's any problem. Anything he controls is going fine. It is when he doesn't control it that it isn't going fine. In a perfect world for him, he would never appear in a debate. And I think his eye-rolling reaction to the first one is quite understandable and quite consistent with what you and I both just said about how the debates aren't really debates. But here would be, if I were seeking to be fired as Bloomberg's caddy, I would say the following things. Don't be wooden. These are quotes that are coming from a person on the East Coast who is far less anti-Trump than other East Coasters would be. So the admonitions for the debate, don't be wooden. Quit looking like a mummy. And I think what is meant by that is an Egyptian mummy. Don't be arrogant. I don't know who he is. In other words, let people know who you are. He seems like a phony. He has been everything, a Republican, a Democrat, and an independent. And this might tip off the gender because I wouldn't necessarily notice this sort of thing. But apparently there has been a great deal of plastic surgery for Bloomberg, or so it would appear. At this point in the conversation, I was sort of writing down bullet points. And there was a kind of, who the hell is he? He bought his way into the debates. He's trying to pretend he's the Lone Ranger. And instead, he's just pissed everyone off. Those would be the things that I would endeavor to say, except I know they wouldn't be helpful. It would be terrible coaching to appeal to that. But I think he's got to do things. I think he's got to do, go to his strengths, which are 
to focus on the areas that he has total control of, the ads. Focus on wholesale politics as opposed to the sort of, quote, being tested, close quote. It was interesting because I have a friend in New York who was a real all-star in advertising business and is very focused on the importance of campaign slogans and happened to really hate the Hillary Clinton campaign slogan of better together and stronger together. So I said, well, what do you think would be some good broad brush slogans that would depict Bloomberg in a good way? Just fix it. Mike will get it done. She liked both of those. She suggested somewhat facetiously, I believe, the candidate who signs the fronts of the checks. And then a leader for America's future, leadership like no other, a proven leader for America, successful leadership, proven results, Mike for a prosperous tomorrow. And of course, another one that he's using or may use is I like Mike. Now that's going to appeal to 1950s voters who will remember the I like Ike. So it seems to me that the parties like the idea of retail politics because it keeps their consultants employed. And they don't necessarily like the idea of the sort of wholesale approach, A, because it's a different way of doing it that may cut them out of the loop, and B, because may require a different kind of consulting services. But it seems to me that if I were Bloomberg, I would try to focus on the wholesale over the retail. And we're going to certainly be moving into the wholesale phase as the process wears on. Now, will he still be able to catch up? I don't know. The one thing I would add to, and this would be something that I would try to get in on the debate, is he's been an actual executive and someone who has run a 10, 12 million person city. And so when they go after his record on stop and frisk and soda bans and all these other things, if I were him, you know, as opposed to apologizing for policy decisions that he's made, just say, you know what, what experience have you had, Sanders, Warren, et cetera, being in front of your constituencies and not having the luxury of an up or down vote? I put in policies that I thought were the best that I could do at the time with the data that I had. You folks, on the other hand, you just sit up here and talk and blather and something happens great. And if you don't like it, you can either vote down or abstain. I have my people coming to me directly when the garbage doesn't get picked up or when the snow isn't plowed. And I think there's a lot of experience there that people will understand. And whether you, if you're a flyover state and you don't like New York City or the concepts of that that entails, that at the same time, you still have to recognize that to make it work requires a lot of different skills that aren't represented by senatorial experience. The one person who would benefit from riding the coattails of this kind of narrative would be Mayor Pete. Problem for him is that he's the mayor of a 100 or 200,000 person city. Mayor Bloomberg, Brooklyn is the size of most countries. But that would be one thing I would suggest to him is to just say, look, I've had to, aside from the entrepreneurial part of building a business and being private sector, massive success, took some of those concepts and delivered that into 
New York City, a place that's complicated with complicated constituencies, with people who want everything now that you're never going to make happy. I had real problems to get through, not least of which sort of 9-11 issues and making things work. And to have that and to say, what have you guys done? So when Sanders is like, oh, yeah, you know, I've done this and that, he hasn't passed any legislation of any note. Senator Warren has a better record to stand on in the public sector and some of the things that she's done and some achievement elsewhere. Mayor Pete and Klobuchar have their various components. And I sort of look at that and say, go on the feel good about what you've done. And I think you can, quote unquote, apologize for your record by making people understand the enormity and the complexity of the job that required those decisions. And I think that might hold some water. I think it's very interesting because what you are suggesting underscores the difference between narrative and reality. And in a way, there might be a lesson to be learned from those who would say, in defense of Civil War statues, they did what they thought was correct at the time. And today, we don't think that that's correct. But do we want to apply today's standards to some long period of time ago? And For those who would like to see a lot less drama and politics and just get the job done, get the work done, who might be more enthusiastic about actual results, but you still, I would hope, I mean, my I remain naive on this issue, that that should prevail over narratives. And at the moment, the narrative that you have to apologize for stop and frisk is prevailing over the idea that statistically, stopping and frisking was a pretty good way to reduce crime. If you care about the healthcare costs in your city or country, Soft drinks are not a good thing. The way people eat is not necessarily a good thing. It is right to do, but hard to sell. And whether you look at whether there is a sufficient makeup of in the national electorate, which remains 42% independent, 30% Republican, and 27% Democrats, is that 42% that is sort of independent, obviously they lean one direction or the other, are they the get it done people? And if so, that is a plurality of people. And you'll clearly pick up some Democrats and and even probably some Republicans. But the get it done people versus the narrative people, Bloomberg should definitely be on the get it done side. So once he sort of charts his course accordingly, I guess one of the other aspects is how is he going to resonate in these flyover states where I think his resonance will pick up certainly in New York. People who lived here, I think, look back fondly at his tenure in terms of the efficiency he brought in and helping to make the city in many ways run like a top. California has some experience with them. You know, people in urban environments who come from a New York experience are going to have a good view of him. Is he going to resonate, do you think, in the flyover states? His gun position, I think, is going to be very problematic. Probably not problematic in terms of the nomination process, but in the broader sense. 
in the national, you could have huge issues on that front. The soda ban, which I agree with you, the libertarian in me doesn't like the idea of it. But at the same time, you see people who can't fit on airplanes and you say, well, that, that's not a good result either. Many people can't help themselves on this front. I don't know if that's going to resonate well in a lot of different spots. Oh, I think it won't. But if you say to yourself, what could I do to move the needle on healthcare costs, nutrition and self-help would be a really good start. I mean, it's not all of it. It's not all of it. I think that the interesting thing, and whether it's narrative or truth, I don't know. But here is something that resonated with me. Bloomberg didn't have any particular concern about guns at all until a city councilman who had formerly been in the New York Police Department was shot. And it suddenly alerted him to this situation. Then he became quite zealous on the topic. It has long seemed to me that one way to address the gun question is through geography. Now, this is not going to please the absolutists. This is not going to please the Second Amendment people. But there is a difference between I happen to be south of Salt Lake City as we are speaking, and I'm staying in an Airbnb, and the host of the Airbnb put on the notification that he had a gun. That was presumably something that he felt was important. He described it as in a biometric case for safety, but he put on his offering of this place where I'm staying he said he had a gun. Now, is having a gun in Utah the same as having a gun on the Upper West Side? I think it's not. And I think that if someone were to say, look, we really need to do what we can to stop people from shooting each other, there's a population density component to that. And he might be able to say, I live in New York. We really don't do a lot of hunting in New York City. For us, Guns are often very poorly used. And so you need to understand, or we need to focus on this with a geographic component to it as well. Whether that would work or not, I have no idea. I know that I have friends who will listen to this podcast and will jump all over me for saying that. Yeah, it's a weird third rail on the Second Amendment. It's just one of those things that it touches a deep nerve. And I mean, Bloomberg can't walk back his positioning from that. And the question is whether he can use it to some sort of effect if he gets the opportunity to go for it on a national basis. We've actually gotten almost 40 minutes and we haven't said the word Trump yet, <laughs> and which is amazing for an electorally focused podcast like today's is. And I, when talking to a lot of folks, I said, he must just be sitting back watching this and having a big giggle because a lot of pundits say the, the big winner in the last debate was indeed Trump that a lot of people are looking at the slate of alternatives and they just are saying it's crazy. And that Lloyd Blankfein tweet, I think, really underscored it, where if it's Trump v. Sanders, there's someone of some level of accomplishment looking at that saying, I'm going to have to vote Trump or don't show up. Where do you see that come out? I mean, I think emboldened by not being impeached, the economy is currently riding high. A lot of tailwinds for President Trump right now. What's it going to take? Well, it's interesting. I, there was what I thought was a fairly funny line. And sometimes lines are funny because, oh, my gosh, that's kind of true. And I hadn't thought of it. And that's why it strikes me as funny. But Brett Stevens, 
by no means a left-leaning columnist for the Times, formerly the Wall Street Journal. He described a self-righteous pleasure in hating Trump, and it would disappear if Trump lost. So it's kind of a, what would I do if I didn't have Trump to hate? And is that a kind of a subtext that it's more fun to hate Trump than to win? But I think that there's no question that Trump would very much like Sanders as his opponent. To go back to the 42% of people who are independent, just start shouting, communist, socialist, communist, socialist, and keep talking about the economy and how well people are doing and how unemployment is really low and as expensive as healthcare is, it is nonetheless people's choices. I do think that the ascent of Bernie Sanders is helpful to the brethren. That's how I view it, at least right now. Well, Haven, great to speak with you. This is probably all going to change after South Carolina and then change again after Super Tuesday. So look forward to following this with great interest. Absolutely. And those changes are the reason that we have Skype and the need for even more podcasts. (laughs) That's right. Take care, Haven. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.